Uh, we're going to read Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Did you hear now the word of God? Then they, now who's the they? It's the Sanhedrin, right? It's the leadership of the temple. It's the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. So the Sanhedrin sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. It is not lawful, excuse me, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness? And the inscription is this. They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Did you pray with him? King Jesus, I pray that afresh this morning that we would be amazed at you. God, that when we consider the authority of your Son, that you would lead us to bow the knee of our hearts toward you. God, that we would not take your word for granted, that we would not take for granted the fact that you've spoken to us and demonstrated to us how we can have life and life everlasting. God, that we would walk in your way and that we would do it with great joy. I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. It's Passover week, and the Jewish religious leaders are ready to be done with the disturber of the status quo. Did you know it's still the case that people don't like change? Nobody likes the status quo to be interrupted and stirred. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's messing with the status quo. In chapter 11, verse 18, we read that they want to destroy him. In verse 12 of this chapter, we've already read that they are seeking to seize him, but they couldn't do it. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. We read time and time again that what the religious leaders want to do to Jesus, they are incapable of doing to Jesus. Why does Mark keep showing us that? He, he shows us that because he wants us to know that Jesus, the Passover Lamb of God, will die on God's timetable, not man's. And that when Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, it is not man taking Jesus' life from him. It is Jesus giving his life for you. Jesus is in control. He is the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and he came down to live the life that you failed to live and to die to death and you should have died and been raised up on the third day so that you can have life in him if you trust in him. Amen. Don't neglect so great a king, a king whose life could not be taken, but he laid it down for you. But here's a question. This king of glory who came to Israel, came to his own, he came to Nazareth, and he was rejected. Why is he rejected? Why are the religious leaders, the ones that, if they were members of our church, you looked up to and said they're tithers, they hold positions, they're deacons, they do all the great stuff. Why are the religious leaders ready to be done with the very person that they should have been looking for? Two words. Pride. And influence. Pride and influence. Church, in our pride, we would rather train people to rely upon us than to worship Christ. 
Jesus was like a new kid at school taking all the attention away from the other cool kids. Have you ever happened in, students, has this ever happened in your high school? I remember in the 11th grade, a young lady named Melissa came from out of town, and Melissa was not unattractive. And the other young ladies in the 11th grade weren't too appreciative of the presence of Melissa. Melissa had shown up, and the guys noticed Melissa, and suddenly all the other popular cool girls for about six months couldn't stand Melissa. They couldn't figure out how to get along with Melissa. And that's kind of like Jesus here, right? Rather than celebrating the arrival of Jesus, they are jealous and bitter and frustrated. In the presence of Christ, their glory, authority, and influence is eclipsed, and they want to take Jesus down. They want to undermine him. They want to backbite him. They want to cut him off before he accomplishes his will and his work in the world. And so the question for us is, why does Mark include this in his gospel? Of course, he wants to reveal to us that Jesus wins, but he also wants to reveal to us that there's a danger that when Christ really starts to show up in his church, when Christ really starts to get victory in the lives of his people, when the pastors and the staff get on the same page and pointing people to King Jesus, there will be some who will show up and try to derail it. There will be some who want to undermine it. There will be some who want to sabotage it. And the reason it's here is because we've got to keep our eyes on Royal Baptist Church fixed on Christ the King. Christ the King has come, and He's made us His people, His bride, His body, and He has come to give His life to save sinners. That is our mission, that's our goal, that's our purpose. And it frustrates people who want to point others to themselves when Jesus starts getting more and more and more glory, more and more obedience from His church. I love it. I love it when Satan is on the run and He's getting upset. <laughs> I love it when Jesus is getting the glory and the obedience that he is doing. And what we see in this text is that when we seek to devote ourselves totally to God, there will be some that try to trap us. There will be some that try to trip us up. And yet we must remain focused on God's mission when people try to trap us. And that really, verses 13 and 14, could almost be a sermon unto itself. Because then we get the question from the Pharisees and the Herodians, and that's the first of three questions in succession that are that would be questions of Jesus' authority. But we'll, we'll go ahead and treat the question and Jesus' response to that first question this morning with the next two points. To devote ourselves totally to God, secondly, we must obey the government as long as we can. And thirdly, we must worship God as long as we live. First, we must remain focused on God's mission when people try to trap us. The world wants to force a decision, wants to put you in between a rock and a hard place. In Acts 22, where you have no good choices, that you can't feel free to choose Jesus. The Sanhedrin sent a delegation of Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus, and the word sent in verse 13 is the word apostolos. It's a apostoleo. It's the same word that Jesus uses for the sending out of his disciples or his apostles. In other words, when Jesus sends you out on mission, Satan will send others to you on a counter mission. Satan will fight it. Jesus' enemies are sent on a counter mission to Jesus. And the word trap is a word that is used to describe pursuing and hunting prey. 
They are hunting Jesus down like a wild animal, a trophy. As Edwards writes, Jesus faces persistent challenges to his authority. If they can just catch him in a statement, verse 13. You see that word statement or sentence? It's actually the word word. When Jesus was questioned earlier about the authority that he had, he talked about John the Baptist. Jesus said, I will answer you one word. And now the Pharisees and the Herodians want to trap him in a word. But what they don't understand is Jesus is the word of God made flesh, and they will not catch him. They will not capture him. They cannot compete with his authority or his power. You know, enemies make strange bedfellows, don't they? The Pharisees and the Herodians are together again. They were together back in chapter 3, verse 6, and now they're at it again. Remember, the, the Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the right-wingers of the day, and the Herodians were the liberals, the big government people. The Pharisees hated the Herodians, except that the Herodians also hated Jesus. And so now the Herodians and the Pharisees are together. Why? The Pharisees, because Jesus is messing with their religious agenda. The Herodians, because they were, he was threatening their political advantage. And so Jesus did what nobody else could do. He brought Herodians and Pharisees together. <laughs> Jesus messes with anyone who puts their confidence in anything other than God. And confidence in God is confidence in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Satan will try to put, ever, put together whatever coalition that he can to get in the way of you living wholeheartedly for Christ. Students in your high school, among your peers on social media, wherever you go, when you live for Jesus by unashamedly following his word, when everybody else thinks it's crazy, people will oppose you. They will lie. They will spread rumors. They will undermine. They will speak half-truths. They'll do whatever they can to ruin your life or a church that is trying to live for Jesus. But that's okay because we're living for the kingdom. And some will even try flattery. Look at verse 14. They call him teacher. Hey, teacher, you're great. And then they say three things about Jesus that are exactly right. You're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by men. In other words, he doesn't make his decisions based on taking a poll. You know Jesus doesn't poll the audience. He doesn't phone a friend. He's the Lord God Almighty. He does what God does. And thirdly, he teaches the way of God in accordance with what is true. And all of these statements about Jesus are true. It's exactly who Jesus is. But they don't believe a word of it. They're trying to blow smoke so that they can derail his plan by flattering him. And the goal of flattery is what? To puff people up so that you can get them to do what you want them to do. The Bible warns us about this, right? Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, David says, There's nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. You know people I respect most people who tell me the truth? Not people who tell me every sermon was amazing because it wasn't. People who say that, that called me the wrong way, or I wasn't sure what you said. I'm grateful for people. Yes, I mean, be careful how you say it, especially right after the sermon. But I'm grateful for people who tell the truth, right? How do we get better in our Christian walk if all we tell people is how great they are? I'm thankful for brothers in this fellowship who have come to me in private and said, hey, what about this, what about that? We need to be open to rebuke and not just flatter people. 
notice that the opponents of Jesus don't just stop with flattery. They also try to undermine it by creating lose-lose scenarios. Lose-lose scenarios. They ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? I mean, that's like when my mom used to ask me, would you like Brussels sprouts or lima beans for dinner? <laughs> is there another option? <laughs> it's like people who argue about whether they like UNC basketball or Duke basketball. Who cares? I mean, neither one of those is a really bad choice. <laughs> All good questions with no validations. <laughs> See, if Jesus pays tax, if Jesus says to pay the tax, the people, the crowd, who is supporting him, will, because they think he's a military rescuer and conqueror who's going to deliver them from Rome right then, then they would probably turn on him. But if he says not to pay the tax, he could be arrested and tried by the Romans for sedition and insurrection. If he answers one way, the Pharisees will have him. If he answers another way, the Herodians will have him. And both the parties will be happy because Jesus has finally done away with it. We don't have to deal with his authority anymore. Jesus sees right through their power for it. And do you see what he says before he answers the question in verse 15? Why are you testing me? Drop the charade. Stop hiding behind your questions. You're coming to me with an evil, wicked, twisted heart. You're not even interested in the question. You're not even interested in the answer to the question. You're just here you want to take me down. And then after he calls them out and puts them on the back of the defensive, the word testing, by the way, is the same word for tempting used in Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan is behind them. Jesus, however, is undeterred in the face of those who want to undermine his authority and stop his victory. He calls out the guilty, and then he reminds them that they owe him their lives. Give your all to God, he says. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, but to God what is God's, and what is God's but everything. Give your life to God. Which creates a challenge for us, church, because we live between the times. We live between the time of Jesus' coming and his coming again. He's the king overall, and yet we are citizens, most of us, of these United States of America, and some of us on our way to citizenship, and some of us citizens from Kenya or Mexico or other places. And the question for us that is posed by the question of the Pharisees and the Herodians is, what do we do between the times with civil government because I want to work with Jesus as king? That's a great question. We're going to answer First, we must obey civil government as long as we can. We must obey civil government as long as we can. When Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar, the tax that's being asked about is the imperial tax, first instituted in 6 AD. And the amount required to satisfy the poll tax was one denarius, which was the average daily wage of a worker in Palestine. So understand what they're saying. Jesus, you've come with authority, but you still expect us to pay taxes to a pagan government? Can, can we really be God's people and pay taxes to a government that doesn't serve you? But see, there's where they're messed up, because even governments that are not aligned with Jesus are still serving God, even when they don't know. God has created governments for the purpose of protecting people and punishing the wrongdoer. Don't you think someone who is focused on giving themselves to God would be overturning Rome and not overturning the tables of the temple of Jesus? What's 
how he exposes it, because I do. They come to him with a question about Rome, acting like he's tipping his hat to Rome, and he doesn't have any Roman coinage on him whatsoever, apparently. So he's like, that's a great question. Why don't you show me some of that Roman currency in your pocket since I don't have any? And so he exposes their hypocrisy by proving the fact that they are well in bed with Rome anyway, right? They're the ones carrying around the Roman currency. Jesus looks at the coin and asks, whose likeness, the word there is literally image, whose image and inscription is this? And of course, the image is Caesar. Jesus then responds with a sentence that has been called not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Wow!
you will find your welfare. In the welfare of the Commonwealth of Virginia, you will find your welfare. And the welfare that's being talked about is not welfare from the state. It's the well-being of our community. We seek the well-being of our community by serving it in Jesus' name and pointing them to the fact that their hope is not here, but it's found in the King who died for them. As Ashley writes in his book, One Nation Under God, where he teases out the interpretation of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar, and God, what God, what is God for our context, he says this, and it's important for us to hear each other. The Bible will have nothing to do with modernity's hard and fast split between religion and politics. Wow. Did he just say that? Did the pastor just go there? I did. We, the sheriff of Rogo County is a member of North Carolina Baptist Church. I praise God for that. He's gotten involved in the process. Run for the school board. Run for county administration. Get into government and influence it for good. He continues, Christians living in the United States, we should work for change when our government does not reflect God's best intentions for our society. This means that Knowing that the United States of America is one of the leading countries in the world for the practice of partial birth abortion, that that should grieve us, church. We should lobby. We should pray. We should protest. We should give. We should support. We should buy diapers. We should let the woman know who's co contemplating an abortion that we will stand with her when no one else will. That if she comes into this family of faith, we will hold her up no matter what it costs us. If she will spare it like that child, and that child will be our own, and we will pray God would let them become a believer through the adoption that we can have through the blood of Jesus. Amen. And we won't just do it on pro-life. We'll do it on all sorts of things. We'll do it on school policy. When our national government says we're going to have transgender bathrooms that my son or daughter has to go to, I will stand up and say, over my dead body. When the government rewards irresponsibility and penalizes responsibility, we must stand up and make a stand for the gospel. In other words, church, we obey government as long as we can, but we must never abandon the truth that has set us free. We are weirdos, y'all. Do you know how weird you are? You believe that this isn't it. You believe that a Christ is coming back for you and that he died for you and he's given you a life that fixes your eyes in a place that's different from here. We are weirdos because our vision of the good life conflicts radically with the vision of most of our neighbors. Ashley continues, Christianity that is comfortable in the modern context is Christianity that has had its teeth removed. It is a sham. We are not ultimately here for our government, but for God. We are here to proclaim with our lips and our lives that the crucified and risen Jesus is the world's Lord and King, the one before whom every knee must bow. And in general, church, the way we declare that Jesus is our Lord and King is when our government goes crazy, we announce it by our quiet, peaceful obedience whenever we can. But what do we do? What do we do? When government enacts policies that force us <coughs> to choose between obeying government and obeying God. What do we do when a government enacts policies that force us to choose between obeying government and obeying God? Well, the answer is pretty simple. We give to God what is God's no matter what it costs us. 
First Peter chapter 4 speaks of these moments as fiery trials. And in these moments, we must worship God as long as we live. Do you remember the book of Daniel? You remember Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and an idol was constructed, and every day they're supposed to bow down and pray to the idol, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the idol. And you remember the word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they say, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king. That we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Not going to do it. You see, the denarius may bear the image of Caesar, but the people of God bear the image of God. In other words, your duty to Caesar is surpassed by your duty to God. The ultimate authority in your life belongs to God. And where these authorities conflict, God always trumps human government. As Paul writes, whatever you do, not just in your house or in your church house, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know, Capitol Hill, that when you try to limit us to worshiping in the gymnasium or the sanctuary or in our home and say everything else is out of bounds, that's not what Jesus says. I owe him my life. I'm going to give him my life. And you won't define my freedom as freedom only to worship where you say I can worship. I'll worship wherever I can in everything I do. And when that priority conflicts with your priority, do to me what you want. What does this mean, church? Here's what it means. The government has no business, no business regulating the membership of Christian churches or deciding who should or should not be their pastor. It should not attempt to determine what church is a true church and which is not. Government that functions within its God-given limits will not force Christian doctors or nurses to participate in taking the life of an unborn child or to conduct research using harvested fetal, fetal tissue. It won't penalize or coerce medical professionals who refuse to participate in such practices. A government functioning within its God-given limits cannot force Christian business owners to violate their consciences in order to stay in business. Such things are beyond the government's jurisdiction and competence. And this is why Baptists in the United States of America, before it was the United States of America, said we won't sign on to this experiment unless you give us a bill of rights. They wanted to prevent the government from getting into the spheres of life that God never assigned to. They understood, church, what we're not willing to say anymore. That the more of our lives and our livelihoods and our way of living that we give away to the government, the more that we're putting ourselves at risk of moral compromise when the government says that you've got to deny Christ to get the resources that we're holding. Do you understand what I'm saying? The more you entrust yourself to the government to be your provider, when the government moves the cheese and says, well, now we're not going to support Christians, what are you going to do? Are you all here, church? This is the argument for limited government. The argument is we owe our lives to God. And because we owe our lives to God, we want to function and live in a society where as much as possible... I'm not dependent upon the government to tell me what I can or cannot do in order to have a livelihood. You say, well, does that mean you're against welfare? Does that mean you're against social programs? No, but what it does mean is this. Use them as a help 
on the way to financial independence, not as a source of dependence. That's right. Don't say that. We will help you. You don't know the language, we'll help you learn the language. You don't have job skills, we'll help you get job skills. You don't have a resume, we'll help you write your resume. We're here to help you. But don't stay in a place of dependence. Become independent, become free from the government because our government, the last time I checked, is getting further from God, not closer to God. That's all right. And the things they're expecting of us are worse, not better. We will help you. If you need help, we will help you. Caesar can have his coin, but he cannot have our lives. He cannot have our hearts or our values or our beliefs or the application of those beliefs in our everyday life and work. Caesar might be the emperor, but Jesus is the king. Amen. Amen. The church, the state is always at risk of becoming an octopus whose tentacles reach into every aspect of its citizens' lives. What this means is we must obey government as far as we can, but we refrain from putting our ultimate hope in our government, even if it's the United States of America. Bruce Ashton said it this way, God planted us here, and we should serve our cities and our countries. However, we are alien residents in that we will not truly be at home in this world until Christ returns to renew it and restore it and purge it of sin and sends consequences. Our feet can be firmly planted on American soil, but our eyes will also be firmly fixed. On the future kingdom. Mm-hmm. This morning at North Road Baptist Church, our hope is in a king who's coming. Amen. So, how should we respond? As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, and we recognize that we owe our lives and our hearts and our livelihoods to Christ the King, how should we respond? A few practical applications. Number one, obey the law. Pay all your taxes. When I was in seminary, we had someone come into our home to take care of Elizabeth. And I don't know if you know this or not, but if you have someone provide child care in your home, you're supposed to pay their Social Security. It's insanity. Lots of senators have never done it. Lots of congressmen have never done it. But guess what? I pay every dime of what I owe in taxes to the U.S. government. Not because I thought it was right of them to expect, but because I'm a citizen of the United States and I bet well. You get paid cash for a job, pay tax on it for you. Amen. We should be upstanding in every way, even when it's crazy, available. Pray for your elected, appointed, and other government officials and employees, First Timothy 2. Register to vote. An election's coming up on November the 6th. You don't get to vote. Unless you've registered. If you've not registered to vote, registration ends October the 15th. And finally, church, we've got to prove that Christ is our true hope. Colossians 3.1 says, set, set your mind on things above. Grandparents, parents, legal guardians, live in such a way that if you were to breathe your last breath going home today, that they would say, I know their true hope was fixed on a coming king. Amen. It wasn't in a retirement fund. It wasn't in anything else. It was in Christ, the coming King. Finally, unless there's revival in our land, darker days are coming. That's right. And I want to be a church that prepares our kids and our grandkids to stand in the fiery trial no matter what it costs. This morning, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are partaking of the bread 
and of the crushed fruit of the vine, not only in looking back to what he has done, but in anticipation of the fact that my king will come. He will come. No matter how dark, no matter how hard, no matter what it costs me, my king is good on his promise. And I will take the crushed fruit of the vine and the bread into my body as a reminder of the fact that he was broken for me and that he was broken for me is coming again. So this morning is our deacons come. And as we prepare to serve the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to evaluate the hope. Are you letting God, what is God, be God's? Does God have all your life? Does He have all your treasure? Have you abandoned yourself to Him? As John prays, I'll pray. And we'll consider that and then receive the Lord's Supper. Lord, we love you. We bless your name this morning. We thank you, God, that you are coming. That you are risen. That you are king. And God, as we walk in this life and, and we have these legitimate questions of, of how to obey and how to live and how to serve you in a world that, that doesn't even want you and wants to throw off your authority. God, help us to be the place where we show a watching world that we've got a king who doesn't just love us. Love us. He died for us. He's coming to you. God, help us to know as life gets more and more and more complicated how to serve you in our day. We ask you in Jesus' name.